Well, we're in part two of our Father's Day series. Last week we talked about the curse of a passive father, but this week it's going to be a little bit more positive, okay? We're grateful for what God has done in the life of dads. But I'm going to speak to you this morning about the power of a father's blessing. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the story of Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway grew up in a very devout Christian home. Did you know that, by the way? And yet, there, he never experienced the grace of Christ. He lived a libertine life that most of us would call dissolute, but there was no father and no parent waiting for him when he sank into the mire of a graceless depression. A short story he wrote perhaps reveals the grace that he hoped for. It's the story of a Spanish father who decided to reconcile with his son who had run away to Madrid. The father, in a moment of remorse, takes out this ad in El Librio, which is a newspaper. And this is what he writes. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven between us. Papa. Hemingway goes on to write, When the father arrived at the square in hopes of meeting his son, he found 800 Pecos, waiting to be reunited with their father. Then he asks, was Peco such a popular name? Or is a father's forgiveness and blessing the salve that every child's soul awaits? Wow, what a question. What a book. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 48. That's the story of a man who is going to bless his children. He's an older man, and his name is Jacob. This verse came to my mind this week, which kind of sets the tone for today's message. It's in Psalm 145. Don't turn there, because this is all you're going to see of it. But listen to the words. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's exactly what happens this morning in our story as Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, the twelve tribes, blesses his children on the day before he's ready to die. Warren Wearsby writes, one of the most important obligations of the older generation is to pass on to the younger generation the truth about the Lord. Listen to me. Don't complain about your arthritis and your back. Tell them about the faithfulness and the goodness of God with everything that you have in you. A patriarch's final blessing was important in biblical times as a practical matter of inheritance rights. In other words, there were no attorneys. You didn't go into a law office and sit down. It was in this final blessing when the patriarch extended his hand that you found out what your birthright was going to be and what land you would possess and what you would inherit. So this was a very sacred time during this period. And in addition... Some final blessings included prophetic statements that reveal God's supernatural power at work through the men of his choosing. So this is why these people would see this as very, very significant and important. So what I'm going to do is give you four points in an outline and then four truths that every father should pass on to their child. But what a wonderful text here as we think about this wonderful passage of Scripture. The first thing I want you to see is adoption. 
Now, I'm going to talk to you about this man, Jacob, and I'm going to have to give you just a little bit of background about his life because some of you may have come in and you don't know a thing in the world about him. Well, God had a redemptive plan from eternity past, but he began to work it out on earth, and he was going to choose a certain line of people through whom to bring Messiah. He chose a man named Abraham, and Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac, And Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob. Jacob was a twin brother of his older brother Esau. If you read the story, back in the womb, these two boys began to struggle, which was a prophetic idea of what was going to happen through their life. And Jacob came out second after his brother Esau came first. And Jacob had a hold of his heel. As a matter of fact, if you read the story, the Nurse had to tie a little string on the one to figure out which one came out first because, as you know, the firstborn is the one who received the double portion. Well, Jacob, after he arrives on the earth, after struggling in the womb, he gets named Yaakov, which means heel grabber, supplanter, or trickster. And certainly he was named exactly right because that's what he did throughout his whole life. If you read the story, Isaac, when he became old, he had Cain come up and told him, I'm sorry, Esau come up and said, I want you to go and make me some pottage and I want to bless you. Well, he knew good and well God wanted to bless the younger, but the father had the favorite. By the way, anytime you have favorites in the home, you have problems, don't you? But nevertheless, Esau was the the favored one. But Jacob here decides that he's going to outdo his brother. So he and his mother, Rachel, conspire to trick Jacob. I'm sorry, conspire to trick Isaac. There's a lot of names to keep together here. And I've already preached this once. They conspire to trick Isaac, and they're going to get him to pass the blessing on to Jacob. Well, as you know the story, he trades the younger for the older, and he tricks his father. Well... As the old saying goes, chickens come home to roost. This event where he would obtain the blessing from his father instead of from God ended up reversing and Jacob ended up getting run off by threat of death by his brother Esau. And he went to a place where he earned his PhD from a man named Uncle Laban. Now, if you've never read the story about Laban, you need to read it because he was actually Rachel. He was her father. And he was kin to the family, and that's where the children would send their wife. They wouldn't send them to Las Vegas, Nevada to to obtain a wife. They would send them back home. And so Jacob knew that Esau was going to kill his other son, or Isaac knew that, so he decided to send him over with the family. Well, Jacob sure enough went to Laban, and Laban had uh, something in store for him because Jacob had no clue what was coming. And so as he gets there and he goes to lift the rock off a well, he sees this drop-dead, good-looking, gorgeous girl, and her name was Rachel. And Jacob fell madly in love with her. He introduced himself, found out she was right in the line to marry, asked where the father was, and Laban said, "Uh, Here I am, and what do you want me to do to obtain her, he asked. And Laban said, Well, I don't know. What do you think? How about labor for seven years? Jacob says, seven years of work, no problem at all. And this is how you paid for your dowry and so forth. So he worked for seven years. Now, not to offend you here, I'm just telling you how ancient custom was. 
during those days, uh, wedding time came, seven years had passed, and Jacob goes out and he gets in a little too much alcohol. This is what most people believe. And he gets a little gassed on that night. And Laban, old Uncle Laban, swaps the younger for the older. The older for the younger. And so Jacob, instead of marrying Rachel, he ends up consummating the marriage with Leah. And he wakes up in the morning and he goes, It's Leah! What have you done to me? And Laban leans up against the pole and says, We don't do things that way here in our country. The elder always goes before the younger. Now, don't you know that Jacob, as he worked seven more years for Rachel, thought the whole time how I tricked my father, and now the chickens have come home to roost. So what does Jacob do? He works for seven more years. He finally gets Rachel, who is the one he really loved to start with, and now he's living with two wives and two of their servants. So as God would have it, and you can read this story, Jacob didn't really like Leah. He was in love with Rachel. Well, guess what God did? God favored the one who was unloved. And God gave Leah six sons, and the first one's name was Reuben. So he was the firstborn of all. Well, Rachel begins to conspire, and she says, well, God's not giving me any children, so she gives Jacob her handmaiden. So Jacob begins having children with her handmaiden. And you think, what a sordid mess. It almost sounds like a, some kind of a soap opera, doesn't it? But nevertheless, he has children through the handmaiden. And then finally, God blesses Rachel with a child whose name is Joseph. Well, now you have one man, two wives, two concubines, 12 kids. You know you're in for problems, right? And this is exactly what happened. After Joseph grew up to be just a, a, a little tyke, Jacob began to favor his youngest son. He made him a coat of many colors. It's not Dolly Pardon's, but he had a coat of many colors. And Joseph went out parading before his brothers. And he had a dream, and his dream was that one day all of his brothers would bow down and serve him. Well, if you're a younger brother, that's probably not the best advice you could say to your older brothers that they're going to bow down one day and serve you because nobody, nobody can make you more angry than your sibling. Nobody. And so they begin to quarrel and argue with each other and one of them said, I've got an idea. Let's kill him. We'll just kill him. Now, can you believe this goes on in families? You say, yes, I can. I sure can. So they decide one day they're going to just kill him. Well... A man named Judah, one of the brothers, said, well, we shouldn't kill him. If we're going to do anything, we ought to sell him, and that way we can at least get some money out of him. So they decided, very good idea. So some Ishmaelites make the connection here. Isaac had two children, Jacob and who? Or, I'm sorry, Abraham. He, I am just all mixed up. <laughs> Are you all following me? Some Ishmaelites came down in a caravan and Judah said, we'll just sell him and take him. So they did. Well, as God steps in the picture again, Joseph goes down into Egypt and he becomes a prisoner. Everybody thinks Joseph's off. They carry a garment back and they show it to Jacob, this poor man, and he thinks his son has been eaten by a wild animal. Now, can you imagine as a parent sending your child away and then thinking that they are dead 
showing you evidence. I mean, look at the torment that that would be in your soul. Your youngest child is dead. Jacob grieves and grieves and grieves. Well, as the story unfolds, Joseph goes from the prison to eventually God promotes him to the palace. And instead of being a slave in a prison, he becomes second in command to Pharaoh, only by the grace of God. And when there was a famine in the land, God had put Joseph over all the food, revealed to him what was going to happen. The storehouses were stoked full. And now the people from Israel have to come to Egypt and meet Joseph, the brother that they sold as a slave. Well, there's all kinds of great reversals. Now the brothers become the slaves because they come down and they have to bow to Joseph. And he eventually arranges it where the fathers, the father will come down and meet him and he gets to meet his dad. It's a great reunion. If you never read the Bible, it's a great reason to start because these are the stories of redemption that God tells in real life scenarios of what happens. Well, Jacob's reunited. Joseph, the son, gives him a place to live in a retirement home in Goshen. And all is well until he gets sick. And all of a sudden, Jacob is about to die. And word gets down to Joseph that his father is dying. And he needs to see him. Now, listen closely. This is so important. I think sometimes in our Western culture, we have missed the blessing of old and older age in two regards. Number one, I feel like the older folks uh, sometimes feel like that they are not heard or they don't feel like they're important. And the younger people on the other side feel like that uh, they just don't want to take or waste the time to fool with the older people. That was not the way it was in biblical times. It's not the way it should be in our time. There is grace and wisdom with older folks. But as an older folk, let me give you a little bit of advice because I'm sure I'll be there in a few years if I live. You know, I'm almost 50. Add 20, I'll be 70. I probably won't live that long. But if I do in 20 years, and I batted my eyes and my other son turned 21 yesterday, so don't tell me that it won't happen fast batted my eyes. But when we get older, I think it becomes a more conscious effort. Instead of complaining about our pains and our sorrows and all the things that we have in life, that we should focus more on praise. We should be thankful to God for everything He gives us in life. And I think if we become more positive in that approach, it makes the younger people want to be around us more. And when we're a younger person, I think we need to be more gracious to older folks because we do realize that there are pains and problems that come in life and we have to be a little humble ourselves and realize that we're heading there one day if God lets us live long enough. So there has to be grace on both sides of the aisle here. But Joseph hears his father's dying and he makes a mad dash for him because he wants his dad to read the inheritance rights to him and his children because all kinds of things have unraveled here. So let's look at the text this morning and figure out what happens. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength 
and sat up on the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. By the way, the word Jacob here is used. See that? It was told Jacob and then Israel. You all remember that story? While Jacob was over running from Laban, his father-in-law who was going to kill him, his brother was on the other side, still mad from years before where he'd stole the birthright. His father-in-law was on this side and they're both squeezing in on him like this and Jacob's right in the middle. And the story is when the angel appears to Jacob and Jacob's ladder, it's not Huey Lewis in the news by the way, Jacob's ladder came about and Jacob saw the Son of God ascending and descending on this ziggurat type ladder which was showing that there was a connection between heaven and earth. Jacob was there trying to trick again, thinking about how he was going to mess things up and God came down and yanked his hip out of socket. You know... You think you're going to run from me, Jacob? I'll just pop your leg out. You ever had a hip pulled out of socket? Monroe had a hip replacement. Several of you here have had a hip replacement. That wouldn't be fun, would it? What was God doing that for? Jacob, if you're going to live, son, you're going to be totally dependent upon me. It is not going to be in your strength. And you're going to have to understand that you can connive and you can scheme and you can trick and you can lie your way through life, but I'm finally going to get you down the mat and I'm going to pound you and I'm going to pull your hip out of socket. You're going to have two people that want to kill you coming on both sides and you're going to have to humble yourself and realize I'm your only way out. And so Jacob begins to wrestle with this man, this God-man. As a matter of fact, when the wrestling match was over, he named the name of the place Peniel because it means face of God. He saw the face of God and lived. So here he hobbles up and before he leaves, he says, I want you to bless me. And God himself told him, here's your blessing. I'm going to change your name from trickster, supplanter, and rascal to Prince of God. Because you're going to be my prince. Now, by the way, if you have a messed up life and your life is all over the place or your children's life and you think, oh, my goodness, there's no hope, you should really read the story of Jacob. He was something else. And God chose to use this man above and beyond anybody else. Who could have ever imagined God would have done that? But he did. And this is the God of the Bible, by the way, the one who always surprises us and Jacob said to Joseph God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me behold I will make you fruitful and multiply you I will make you a company of people and will give this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine Now, are you reading this? Grandpa gets the two grandsons and says, these two are mine. Now, if you read this from a Western perspective, you get all bristling, going, oh, wait a minute, you don't take my kids from me. Listen to me. Listen, this is an adoption process. What he's doing is he's passing a legal notification on saying, your two children are going to become inheritors 
of what I'm getting ready to give them just like my other two would. Now, as a side note here, why would Jacob take two grandsons and put them in place of his two sons? Well, you have to read Genesis 49, the part of the Bible everybody always skips over. Because what you understand is Reuben defiled his father. You can read it on your own. I'm not going to go into it here. And Simeon and Levi played a trick on their dad and went in and killed a bunch of men and did all kinds of horrible things. And now Jacob waited and he said, you know what? I am not going to pass my inheritance on to three rascals who were unfaithful. I love them. They're my kids. But I'm going to speak the truth about them and you're not getting it. He says, Reuben, you're, uh, you're as unstable as water, so I can't put any weight on you. And Levi and Simeon, you're wicked. You're, you two are wicked. I, I can't trust you. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to take your two sons, Joseph, and I'm going to give to them what number two and three would have received. And Joseph, since you've been faithful, and even though you're the youngest son, you're going to get Reuben's place as the firstborn. And this is what's transpiring here. It's the adoption process. Notice what he says. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are in place of them. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. Whatever you decide to do to them, inheritance-wise, that's your business. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. And by the way, if you read the rest of Scripture, you'll find out this is exactly what happened. You get over into the prophets, over into Ezekiel, you'll discover that Ephraim and Manasseh became tribes in the nation of Israel. You can read it in the book of Revelation. What happened to Levi? What happened to Simeon? They all got absorbed. What about Reuben? Read it. Fascinating. Jacob says, But as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. Now remember, Rachel was the, the mother of Joseph, so... He never forgot his wife. Boy, can I pound for a minute. Jacob realized that he wouldn't be where he was if it wasn't for the wonderful women that God brought in his life. And he wanted Joseph to know he honored his mother. She died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrathah. And I buried her there on the way, that is, in Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are, Whose are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. I thought you were dead. Your brothers lied to me. I spent years and years. Never thought I would see your face. And behold, God has not only let me see your face, but He's let me see my grandkids also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, by the way, there's a little irony here, and I don't want you to miss this. No matter how big you get, you're never bigger than your daddy. 
Here's the number two man in Egypt. Most powerful man under Pharaoh in the whole earth. And here's his weak, feeble, frail father. Barely has enough strength to muster up on the edge of the bed. And here's the number two man in the world bowing at the feet of his dad. What a picture. He bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. And now notice the blessing that's bestowed upon these boys. So Joseph, Israel, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. Now wait a minute, are y'all paying attention? Who are the boys? Joseph does this. I'm sorry, Jacob does this. Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim. He just switched his hand and put it on the younger one, his right hand. What did the right hand signify, by the way? The right hand was the place of blessing. And the one who received the right hand, we hear this all the time, they received the double portion. So Joseph is lining things up and he's bringing the oldest one where the right hand will hit him and the second born in line where the left hand will hit him and he gets them up to him and old Jacob goes like this and crosses his hands. I just want you all to get this picture. His left hand was on the head of Manasseh crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph by blessing his children and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. Notice what he's saying. God, God, you, the one who has protected me and walked with me and protected me from Laban and protected me from Esau and brought me... God, you, I want you to do the same thing for these boys that you have done throughout my life and show them your faithfulness. And in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Well when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased him. That's not what he wanted. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father. Dad I know you can't see well. But you're not doing this right. Not this way. My father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. Now watch this. But his father refused and said, I know, son, I know. You see, I'm dying, but I'm not dead. I'm blind physically. But I can still see spiritually. And I know things in my older years, son, that you don't know. And I'm trying to tell you what God is saying here. So you quit doing like me and trying to rearrange everything and let God have His way and He'll work it out. I know, I know. Now notice what He says. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, 
His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So we have the adoption, the blessing, and the great reversal. By the way, if you've never read Scripture in this irony way, it is so ironic because for the fifth time in the book of Genesis alone, we meet a reversal of the birth order. Did you know this? God had chosen Abel, not Cain. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. And He chose Joseph and not Reuben. And now he would choose Ephraim over Manasseh, the great God of surprises. He always surprises, doesn't he? It's just the way he works. So now we see the gift and the inheritance that's given in the end of the chapter. And notice this because it's very fascinating. He blessed the two sons after crossing his hands. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Son, you are not going to stay in Egypt forever. You may be enjoying it now. You might enjoy the prosperity. You might enjoy the privilege. But Almighty God has a plan for your life and you're not going to stay in Egypt forever. He will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. The only place in Scripture we hear about Jacob being a warrior. Nowhere else. But apparently here he fought the Amorites by himself with his sword and his bow and he conquered this piece of land. And it was special to him, and I'll link that here in a few minutes, but there was a reason why he wanted Joseph to have the land. So now what are the four truths that we should pass on to our children from a passage like this? Well, number one, we should teach our children to follow Jesus even when we don't understand the direction of our life. You know, sometimes things go crazy in life. We get married and we think that things are going to work out in this particular way. And the next thing we know, either tragedy or something happens that we never expected or planned. Or maybe we grew up our whole life and we planned on getting married and God has never brought the right person into our life and we feel like, oh my goodness, we failed or something has happened. Listen to me. Even in the midst of confusion, when you don't understand the direction, you follow Jesus because He has a plan and a purpose for your life and a reason for every bit of this. You are not going to understand it while you're walking through life. You can take every principle of uh, Aristotle's logic and try to apply it to life, and some things just don't make sense. The square of opposition doesn't make sense in the tangled mess of life. And if you try to figure out God's business, you'll go crazy. So here's what we pass on to our children. Even when you don't understand what happens, you keep being faithful and following the Lord. The second thing... Sometimes God may surprise us beyond anything we could ever imagine. Jacob, of course, thought that Joseph was dead, figured he would never see him again. 
And lo and behold, guess what happened? He ended up seeing his son, and not only his son, but his grandsons. How many times in life has God surprised you when you thought the impossible could never happen, and yet God made it happen? Teach our children that sometimes God surprises us beyond anything we could imagine. Never give up hope. We serve the God of hope. Number three, God knows best. We do not. Here is Jacob knowing what God wants him to do and the younger is going to take the place of the older. Joseph didn't like it and I'm sure poor old Manasseh didn't like it either. I'm sure he struggled with jealousy. How can God bless him? I wanted the firstborn. Boy, you know, when you feel that coming up inside of you, you have to go, hold on. God has something here that I don't understand. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that in the proper time He may exalt you. Because if you don't and you stub up, God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God knows best. We do not. When life throws things at you and you don't understand what's happening or you feel like you're getting second place, Listen to me, be the most graceful in second place as you can possibly be. God knows what He's doing. And then number four, realize this truth. God will be with you and He'll guide you throughout your whole life. This is exactly what Jacob was trying to tell Joseph. God will be with you. Here I was with Laban, with Cain, down in Egypt in starvation, Teach our children that God will be with them in the hard times of life. This is so important. Pass these truths on to our kids. Now what you don't know by looking at that outline is when I went through this, I found four places in here where instead of Jacob complaining about a bad back, bad eyes, arthritis, or plantar fasciitis, he began to talk about the faithfulness of God. I just want to show them to you real quick. Look at verse 3. He says, I'm starting in verse 2. God Almighty appeared to me, Elaz, in the land of Canaan and blessed me. That was it. He appeared to me in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Look in verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Verses 15 through 19, God did this. God went before my fathers. God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. Boy, that's a great one, isn't it? You know, when David wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that wasn't original with him. Did you know that? That wasn't original with David. Jacob is the one who said that. The Lord is my shepherd Yeah, look in verse 15. Verse 16, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And then look at verses 20 and 21, where he talks about the faithfulness of God. He says, So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. This older dying man had only things to say about the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Now let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you like to die that way? If you have to die, 
Wouldn't you want the last thing on your lips to be the faithfulness and the goodness to God? Wouldn't you want your children to hear that? This past week, you know, Father's Day is always bittersweet. So if you have a dad, let me encourage you to really appreciate and enjoy him. Not to turn this about me, but I think sometimes things are personal. But my father, I've told many of you the story, was a Vietnam vet. And while he was in Vietnam, he was sprayed with Agent Orange, just doused in it. Dad, at age 40, early 40s, developed cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was a Marine, tough, got sick, didn't know what was going on, would not go to the doctor. After my mother had told him countless times, go, 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 he waited until he was in stage four cancer all over his body, in his bones, everywhere. My dad, being the tough Marine he was, fought it. The whole time I was uh, a teenager in school, my dad was dying of cancer. I watched him die. This was all part of my salvation, by the way, because... The strongest man in my life got brought to his knees. And through this process, my dad never fully recovered, but he did fight through from stage 4 lymphoma back in the late 80s and early 90s, if you can believe this. And God gave him health until my dad was in his mid-50s. He lived about 9 or 10 years of kind of painful life, but... At age 56, my father was dying, and he finally died. And I can remember, as he was on the hospital bed, my dad mustered up just enough strength to take himself and pull his legs out of the bed. My brother and I were both there. It was a very sacred moment, by the way. I can't read something like this and not not think about it. But my dad said, come here. So my brother and I both came and he sat us down. And he took his big old hands and he raised them up and he put them up on top of our head. And dad said, you boys have no idea how much it means to me that y'all are here with me while I'm dying. I love you and I'm proud of you. I don't really remember my dad saying anything else. And I never remember him speaking to me again. Those are the last words that I remember of my dad. So when I read something like this, it's very, very gripping. My mother had a plaque made of my father in honor of him. And we have it at our house. It's near our home. This morning I walked out on the porch, woke up early, walked out on the porch and turned around and saw my dad's headstone there. And then I looked over to my right and I saw a huge rock. My mother wanted this rock from up on our farm and my dad took his dozer and pushed this rock down beside the house. Well, it was buried for years because a deck was built over it. We ripped the deck off and I saw the rock and I couldn't get rid of it because it reminded me of dad. So I drug it out in the yard where I look at it every day. And someone else from this church came to our home one time and brought us a housewarming gift, which is a big sailor's anchor. It was about that big. And so we were looking for a home for the anchor, and I just took it over and nestled it right on that rock. So you have a a rock, 
and an anchor. As I sat there and stared at those two, I reached and I grabbed my dad's tombstone and I walked over his head's plaque and I laid it right in front of that rock and stepped back and I began to think. Because my father put his hope and faith in the rock, Christ Jesus. And because the anchor was connected to him, I will see my dad again one day. And I stepped back and I took a picture of that and I thought, what, what a memory in my mind of how my father blessed me. And, then, and I just wanted to share that with you this morning because that touched me. And sometimes I get hard and it's hard for things to touch me. That touched me. And then I began to think about the importance of speaking to our children about God and the importance. Do you know that piece of land that Jacob gave to Joseph? Well, if you get your little dictionary out and you look up that piece of land, I want to tell you a story you'll know about. There was a woman from Samaria who was at a well. And our Lord Jesus was going to go the easy way down in Jerusalem, and He said, no, 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 I have to go the other way because I have the work of my Father to do that you know not of. And He went to a place called... Sychar, which was Jacob's well. The hill that Jacob took with his sword and his bow. And there at that well, Jesus met a woman and he called to her and said, Go get your husbands. And she said, I'm not married. And he said, I know. And he told her the story about all of her sordid life. And then he offered her living water. This woman, amazed, believed on Christ for eternal life as he took away all of her sin. Can you imagine all of that adultery and all that mess? And Jesus offered her complete, total forgiveness and she accepted it. She went back to the village and she said, Come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. And guess what? Forgave me for it. She was his witness. You connect those things together and it becomes very apparent that a father's number one role in life is to teach his kids about the faithfulness, the goodness, and the greatness of the God of the Bible. And the only way is to know Him through the person of Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the one through whom nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus the Son. Thank you to the dads and the fathers in our life and may God enable us not just to be a man's man, but to be God's man. Father, thank you this morning for your word and the challenge. I pray that you'll challenge our hearts as fathers. May we invest spiritually in the lives of our children. Thank you for the treasure they are in our life. And Father, for every broken-hearted Son, who has no father this morning, help us to know that we have a heavenly father who will one day restore those hurts and bring healing and restoration. We're thankful and we trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.